we are now in the middle of chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, what is taking place is that Matthew, as a writer for us, is going to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised for a rightful king over God's people and his kingdom. The idea of fulfillment is essentially this, that there's a longing or a desire, some expectation, some stated goal or purpose in mind, and the moment when the thing comes true. Fulfillment is the moment when you say to yourself, that longing, that thing I was expecting, that thing that I was wanting has now been given to me. Fulfillment has a sense of satisfaction. And what we're to read in Matthew is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment the satisfaction of all that God has promised. So we should rejoice in promise and fulfillment. Corinthians tells us that in Jesus Christ, every all of his promises are yes and amen. And as we read Matthew chapter 2, we should be seeing and thinking about, you're going to notice as we read, the word to fulfill, fulfillment of. And I want to point out as we read these verses together, some areas of promise and fulfillment. First, we're going to see that Herod is the fulfillment of a promise of warning. We're going to see what that warning is. What is Herod acting out in this terrible, grotesque act and command of murder? But there is promise and fulfillment. We're going to see that Mary and Joseph, in their receiving of dreams and direction from God, act in history and change where they lived such that the promise of God shapes the contours of history itself. That where people live and move and have their being is not coincidental, but there's promise and fulfillment at the heart of those details. We see a promise and fulfillment of Jesus as a rightful ruler, a king, a prophet, and the presence of God himself. In comparison, not only to the nation of Israel, but to one of Israel's greatest leaders, Moses. That Jesus takes all that was promised, every expectation or longing that could have been and was in Moses has been more greatly and more deeply fulfilled in Jesus. So I want to read, I'm going to start now, 13th verse of Matthew chapter 2, 13th verse down through the end. Those are watching for promise and fulfillment in Herod, and then I'll explain what I mean by that, promise and the way that Mary and Joseph move their family. And then we're going to think about the imagery, the symbolism of Moses and Israel and how Jesus fulfills their promise. Matthew 2.13. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, an angel, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, 
saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we need help. We're more needy than we know. So help us. Pray that we would not go through the motions, but that every bit of our confession concerning Scripture would be experienced and delighted in by us as your people. This word is not dead. So give us life. This word is active, not passive. So, spirit work. This word is truth, not fiction. So awaken us to more reality. This word is comfort, not burden. So spirit, give us hope. These words are life, not death. So we ask, Spirit of God, animate our minds, our hearts, and our hands as we study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Promise and fulfillment is a theme here now in Matthew chapter 2. We saw it a number of ways. The first and most obvious of instances or promises and fulfillment in this text is and the horrible command. There will be a few others that are slightly more symbolic, and I want you to stay with me. If you're not familiar with the full story of Scripture, or maybe you don't know the Old Testament in and out, there'll be some parts of this that you'll say, well, I don't, I'm going to take your word for it. Let that drive you to the Old Testament stories. But of these promises and fulfillment, we're going to walk through them and see what they have for us. The first thing to mention, which is as on the nose as you can get it for this section, the entire narrative is driven by the looming figure of Herod. Herod commands out of his rage the murdering of every child to and under, every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. The question is, what are we learning from this? How could this possibly be a promise? And what I'd say is that this is a promise of warning being fulfilled in a grotesque caricature kind of way, the most extreme kind of ways, and the promise is simply this. Whenever and wherever humanity rejects the ruling of God in our lives, whenever and wherever we choose to live according to our own power, our own desires, and our own commands, the result will be death. God has stated that over all creation. The most simple of all statements, in the day that you sin, you will die. In the day that you take and eat, when I've commanded you not to, you will die. 
the end result, without fail, of rejecting the rulership of God in one's life is a downward cycle of disintegrating death and destruction. And the world has shown this to be true over and over and over again. Herod is a kind of stark example of this. You couldn't get more on the nose, but we shouldn't miss the underlying point. Herod is king, and he does not want to have his kingship taken from him. He refuses the rule of God, and the result is death. Now, you might say to yourself, I don't know much about Herod, but this guy seems bad. I remember hearing a a joke one time for a comedian, and oftentimes jokes are really just in the arrangement, the surprise of the arrangement. And this is surprising, but the joke is like this. Say what you will about Hitler. And now if I pause there, can you feel that? That just kind of feels like, what? Where is this going? Like if you were on the bus, you'd be like, I want off the bus. I don't know where this is headed. He said, say what you will about Hitler. But the more I learn about that guy, I don't care for him. That's the joke. And it's, it's sort of, it's just like that tense, awkward, where is this going But it's true. It's a reality of that the more knowledge you got of it, the more you saw of this nature of sin and death and destruction. And so you might be here this morning and you say to yourself, well, I don't know much about Herod, but what I read here, I just, I don't know. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to help us learn more about Herod. And I think what you're going to say is the same thing. The more I learn about this guy, I don't care for him. Because you might say to yourself, was this odd? Did Herod have a bad day? Was he working out and took too much steroid? Or why, why was he so furious? The reality is by this strong-fisted reign throughout the entirety of his rule. Upon receiving the throne, upon receiving this little kingship, now it's an under-kingship in the Roman Empire, so he's not king of the whole world, but he has a rule, a rule and a reign and can take in taxes and that kind of stuff. Here's a bit of Herod's resume. Upon taking control, Herod systematically slaughtered the last of all of the remnants of a dynasty of Jewish high priestly kings that had ruled before him. Though they had no power any longer, had been peacefully ousted, and Rome had been in power for a good period of time, Herod's first act was to track them down and kill not only them, but their ancestors systematically. It is said that over the course of his some three-decade reign, that more than half of the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin were executed publicly. There are Herod dealing with policy issues or problems of his rule by gathering court officers and at one point killing 300 of them in a snap decision. If that were not so grotesque and unthinkable, there's a layoff joke in there somewhere. Herod's personal life was marked by violence and striving for power. Ancient historians record the reality that he strangled his wife and killed his wife's mother 
and then also executed three of his own sons. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that as Herod lay dying on his deathbed, that of main concern to him in one of his last acts was to make a list of all of the notable men of Jerusalem. Anyone with any measurable amount of influence and to gather them up and have them be assembled in the Hippodrome to do nothing but to wait for the announcement of Herod's death when they should be executed. He did this because he knew that Israel despised him. And he began to imagine the moment of his death being a moment of celebration from the people. And to ensure that that would not be the case, he gathered loved men of all Jerusalem and made sure that they died at the same time. Herod is a nearly unthinkable caricature of violence, of destruction, of death. If this is what the rule of humanity looks like, apart from God's rule, it is devastating. And I believe that part of what we're supposed to learn as we read this is that that is absolutely true. There is no escaping the endless cycle of death and destruction once we have jettisoned God and his rightful claim on our lives. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, and he says that into a world of sadness and lamentation will the Messiah come. Jesus came to a world that had atrocities like this. And so he quotes, this is Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's the kind of world that Jesus steps into as king. He comes to a place that is out of control and can't stop itself from destroying the image of God that has been given to them as a gift. In small ways, we must reckon with this reality, that right now, the challenge before us is to receive in full the rightful claim that God has on our lives, and to organize ourselves fully for His kingdom, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and if we don't, to reap the consequences of self-rule. There is not an alternate world where you can compromise with and add your self-rule onto the rule of God and be better off. It is only death and destruction that comes. That's the great promise of God over all of human history. And try as we might, whenever and wherever that, has, that rule and that promise has been tested, we have found God to be faithful. When we reject Him, death comes. It is not lost on me that we are considering this text and looking at Herod's command for the death of these children on a Sunday that is set aside and often prayed over and discussed as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. A where across time zones and denominations and maturity levels and understandings of Christianity, but 
within those who see God as creator and stamping his image on human beings. This is a day that has been set apart for our voices to be clear. That God is the author and sustainer of life and we are not. And that where life exists and where life has been given, that we do not have the right in our own autonomy or self-rule or for our own fulfillment or satisfaction in some other way to press against his rightful claim on human life. And so we read Matthew chapter 2 and we say, how could it be that such grotesque, terrible things happen? The reality is, is that we are a society who has sown to the whirlwind and reaped destruction. We have determined to live lives of self-autonomy, to place our own rule and our own definition at the center of all satisfaction and fulfillment. And as a result, God has been faithful and true to the promise, when you do such thing, death will reign. And millions upon millions upon millions of image bearers have suffered the consequences of a world that refuses the kingship, that refuses the rule of God. Now, I delight in the fact that this is the first Sunday around in this issue in my lifetime where I can say that at least in some big ways, there have been changes, at least in, a, in a, what I would call a sort of negative standing law that institutionalized the rejection of the value of human life. And we can rejoice and delight in that. That in whatever way we have prayed and spoken and held voice, that there has been movement in that way. But we should also not be naive. The battle for autonomy and for human rule, a life without God, a life pursuing satisfaction that is ultimately death, is alive and well in our world. And what was once perhaps a great wall or one great statement of law has now become dozens and dozens and dozens, even hundreds of smaller battles concerning the same question, does God have the right over his image in humanity or not? And so if we must not and can't be lethargic in days like this, We must rehearse and consistently remember the teaching of Scripture, of nature itself. Jesus has some of the best teaching. There's a time when someone asks him concerning taxes. Uh, It's a money question, a legal question, and he manages to get to the bottom of all things. He grabs a coin out of a fish's mouth, and he says, what's on the image there? They say, Caesar's. Oh, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He may say to himself, well, what was the... I think the point of the story is this. Whose image is on you? Whose image is this, he might say? Whose image is this on the child? Whose image is this on the conceived? It's God's image. Then render to God what is his. And so we must rehearse these stories and and say this animates us even more than it ever has before, not less. We must realize that there are still people 
who have suffered the consequences of a world that has, has become chaotic. There are young women in situations, some of their own choosing, many times not of their own choosing, where the voices in their hearts, their minds, and all around them are giving them different ideas of fulfillment or satisfaction, driven by fear, given choices and options that simply are not theirs to be given. And so we must serve and seek and love well and pray for And in the midst of all of that, because we all know what it would be like to wrestle with self-rule and to reap destruction, we must be gracious and merciful with those who say, I, I want to imagine a different way, a better path. To not add to destruction the cycle of this by giving only condemnation, but to call people to a better ruler, a better king, a better reality. So Herod, and in every way where the spirit of Herod finds its way into our world, we remember the lesson that God is God and we are not, that he alone is equipped to be king and his kingdom will be received or we will die. That's the reality. In addition to promise and fulfillment in Herod, we have promise and fulfillment in the, down to the very moments of history in this text. You may say to yourself, other than an interesting biography, why do we get the addresses of Jesus' home? And it turns out that God is using this battle with Herod to set up a second image of promise and fulfillment that Matthew brings to light. And that is that the Messiah, it was well known to those who are paying attention to these things, the Messiah had particular places that he was to be from. And so if you're making a case for Jesus being the fulfillment of, these, of this kingship, you have to prove that God's promise of place would be fulfilled. And so what happens is that the contours of history begin to bend. God uses the sinfulness of men and the terror of Herod to move Mary and Joseph from their comfortable place in his lineage of David's Bethlehem, and they must flee and go to Egypt. Now, they go to Egypt for a number of reasons. One, it's a longstanding place of refugees. By some accounts, there were some one million Jewish people who had fled and were living in portions of Egypt across the border from the rule of Rome. Second, they would have escaped fully the legal right for Rome or Herod to go and hunt them down because they were in a different nation with a different set of laws. But more than that, and this is what Matthew wants us to see, they went to Egypt because the Messiah and the Savior, the Rescuer, needed to be a fulfillment of the prophets who had spoken before from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus spends his early toddler years in Egypt because Scripture had promised that that would be the case. And so that's where he grows up. There's going to be some really delightful, and I know I said before, if you're, not, if you're not a super perfect Bible student and some of this will be lost in you, then let it drive you to ask more questions and it's okay. 
But over the next number of chapters, Matthew's going to do this really cool thing, and I can't wait to get there. I think maybe some of the culmination will be Jesus going off into the wilderness to be tested. But Matthew's going to do this wonderful symbolism thing where Jesus is coming alongside Israel as God's child, and Israel was unfaithful but carried the promise of God's presence. And Jesus is going to be faithful and be the presence of God, and he's going to go into the wilderness to be tested. You know what I mean? I just can't wait. This imagery that Matthew has, the symbolism is amazing. And this is happening here as well because do you remember what happened with Israel and Egypt? They're in bondage and they need rescuing. They seem hopeless and lost. And then God sends a rescuer with his presence to pull them out. And the prophets have said, you know what? That's going to be a story that's retold with a deeper fulfillment. So Jesus moves to Egypt with his parents because of this fulfillment. But that's not all. The text says in Matthew 2 that he actually moves twice. He goes from Bethlehem, where he is after he's born, to Egypt. Herod dies. One of his children is a total tyrant just like him and takes over that same region so they can't go back there. And they're forced to move to Nazareth instead. And again, at the end of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew says that's to fulfill what the prophet said. He's going to be called a Nazarene. And you say to yourself, well, in my Bible, there's not that weird set-off text. There's not the Old Testament allusion. How do I, or quote, how do I find this? And I think what we need to understand is that what is lost on us as readers, because we're not there, is that being from Nazareth meant something immediately. And the promise and fulfillment that's coming true here is that the Messiah would be despised. Nazareth was a place that you never wanted to go or be from. So I don't want to be too rude and name names. But if I said somewhere you'd never want to be or be from, that's what was taking place. So when he writes and he says he's from Nazareth, people would say, what in the world? And like I said, I'm not going to name names, but it would be like you wanted to live in Tallahassee, but you had to live in Gainesville. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. I said earlier... I repent. I was trying to pick a name that would be lighthearted enough to be like, we love you if you're in Gainesville, it's fine, it's great, but the rivalry thing, you know what I mean. And I want to show you how this comes up. Here's the promise and fulfillment. When Jesus gets older and steps into his ministry, it was recorded for us in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I'm going to go to verse 43 of John chapter 1. A response that the disciples have to the calling of Jesus And I want you to note how obviously they realized this fulfillment, that he would be despised and looked down on and be not of import. He's not from Hollywood. He's not from Beverly Hills. He's not from D.C. He's not from Monaco. This is the account in verse 43 of John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now before I read verse 46, I want you to guess what Nathanael finds impossible to believe about that statement. We found the Messiah, the king and ruler of all things. Do you remember Moses? He wrote about this guy. Now all that doesn't bat an eye. In verse 46, this is what Nathanael says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a despised place, a lowly place, a humble place. 
The kind of place you would not want to be from. And Scripture says that when the Messiah comes, we will reject him. We would see him as despised. Isaiah 53 says that we despised him. We didn't esteem him. And here in the contours of history, Jesus as a toddler, he goes off to Egypt because out of Egypt I will call my son. He ends up growing up in Nazareth of all places because he would be without honor. Promise. Fulfillment. Promise. Fulfillment. Now the final thing that I think Matthew is getting more and more excited about, and he is alluding to in small little shadows and whispers, and eventually at different points will become even more full-throated. It's this reality. That Jesus is the fulfillment of every good promise or hope that has ever been given to a human leader of God's people. Where any human leader was blameless and somewhat a little bit righteous, Jesus is better. Where any human leader had courage and strength and feared not because God was with them, Jesus is better. Where any leader accomplished the rescue of God's people and did away with enemies, Jesus is better. Where any human leader mediated the presence of God and spoke his presence to God's people, Jesus is better. Promise in any human institution of leadership over God's people is going to be fulfilled in greater measure in Jesus. Why does he go into Egypt and be called from there because Jesus, like Moses, has come to a world that needs rescued, is in bondage, and he will be a savior. Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of all that Moses was and was not. Again, as you read the stories and think of the coming from Egypt, you may be and it's okay if you're not seeing all the symbolism because these are, these are things that you can saturate in Scripture in the story of redemption over time. But one of the things that a Jewish reader would have been thinking, Moses is on the Mount Rushmore of Jewish leadership. If you want to compliment someone that they have a godly approach to life and they're helpful, you might say, wow, kind of Moses-like. So when, they, when Moses is brought up in here or there's allusions to Egypt the reader would have been thinking to themselves, are you saying that Jesus is more and better than that? And the answer is going to be yes. Because all that was promised to Moses is fulfilled in the Christ. And they were supposed to imagine, and we are supposed to imagine, this king that we're receiving is giving us all that Moses promised. He's going to give us rescue from bondage. He's going to give us a promised land. He's going to mediate and be a reminder and an assurance of the presence and the voice of God with us as his people. And, unlike Moses, whose glory faded in his face, we receive an inheritance of unfading glory through Jesus who is better. And unlike Moses who sinned and in his rage forfeited his inheritance in the promised land. Jesus is one who is sinless all the way through to the end and is able to go before us and bring us with him into the promised land. He's going before us to prepare a place for us. And unlike Moses who died having not received what was promised to him, we have Jesus who died as a sacrifice and then received all that was promised to him so that we might be wrapped up 
in him. The great reality of the coming of Jesus Christ is that all that you and I were designed for, every whisper of a promise of God, every longing for for satisfaction and fulfillment, every rightly ordered moment of life, every joy in a command that is not burdensome, is fulfilled in Him. That is what's being declared by gospel. It's as though Matthew's painting a picture of all history and showing us how the dots connect. Maybe there's a massive canvas and some parts of it are clear and it's a drawing down here, but then there's some up there and there's red over here and green here and there are just a bunch of pinpoints throughout history. And Matthew wants to show us it's a great paint by number. And if we would listen to the Spirit of God through Scripture, he's taking the paint by number and he's saying, look at this string. Out of Egypt I called my son and he draws it here. And Nazareth here. And Moses here. And rescue here. And eventually what we see come into view through this great painting of the story of redemption is the face of Jesus Christ fulfilling all that was ever promised to those who bear his image. So the gospel is a declaration of the promise of God. He loves you. He's for you. He has a place for you. And a declaration of how that promise is to be fulfilled. Cling to Jesus. Abandon self-rule. Confess your attempts at self-righteousness. Cast yourself upon him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you.